this lesson, we are going to look at misrepresentation. This is actually a very interesting topic in relation to the law of contracts, primarily because, in my opinion, it extends the bounds uh, contextually of the subject matter itself. We are not considering the factors involving the contractual agreement itself, but whatever relationships that were built and statements made prior to that legal arrangement or the legal agreement. So it implicitly extends it to a certain degree. Now, misrepresentation deals with a vast area that you really need to thoroughly look over before you sit for your examinations. What this lesson will do is put everything in context and give you a bigger picture of things. Also, I will go into a little bit of argument so that you can use that when you're answering your examination questions as well. Primarily, misrepresentation is handled by the Misrepresentation Act of 1967, but that does not mean that there are common law safeguards afforded to uh, aggrieved parties or claimants. So we'll look at each of them in turn. But for the purposes of this lesson, let us define misrepresentation as a false statement made either knowingly or unknowingly, which was relied upon by the claimant who went ahead and contracted with the respective party. Now, there are several other definitions you can look at. You can expand it as well. But very simply, that is it. Note that I mentioned knowingly and unknowingly. And let's recall that when we get to uh, the very specific area of categories. Now, in relation to the definition I mentioned, we need to consider three aspects in relation to misrepresentation. Firstly, it need not be the main reason for a party to enter into a contract. Now, the false statement that was made can be one of the reasons which induced the claimant to enter into this particular contract, but it need not be the only reason. Have a look at Edgington and Fitzmaurice in the case summaries and you'll understand why. Also, there might be occasions where you'll come across case law where you'll think that the claimant had all the opportunity in the world to find out whether it was true or false. But court has held, as in Redgrave and Heard, that the opportunity to find out is irrelevant. The burden here in relation to misrepresentation lies not only on the claimant to make sure that he brings to court that there was in fact a misrepresentation, but that the misrepresentation alleged must have been committed by the other party not in reliance that the claimant would find out himself. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the opportunity to find out is irrelevant purely because the misrepresentation should not have occurred prior to the contractual agreement itself. Another element that you should consider is that misrepresentation does not apply where there is opinion held, as in Bissett and Wilkinson. This also is available in your case summaries and try to ascertain a comparison or contrast between this and Edgington as well as Redgrave. However, there are exceptions to opinion as well. For instance, again, in Edgington, there was an intention not to go ahead with that particular arrangement at the outset, even before the contractual agreement was entered into. So where the intention was different from the very outset, court will hold that uh, if if we were to call an opinion as a defense, not valid and as an exception, and that there was in fact a misrepresentation made. Now, if we'll pause for a minute, you'll understand that throughout your study of the law of contract, most 
judgments or most decisions are made not on purely the words themselves on a contractual document. Rather, it's actually made based on the intention of the parties, whether there was consensus ad item between them. It's not necessarily what's in black and white or what's been inked on paper, rather what the parties were thinking. So it might depend on whatever surrounding factors, the party's situation, who is the weaker party, who is the stronger party, so on and so forth. So always consider this whenever you are answering examination questions. It's quite important to keep a track of who said what and the background context as well. Now, generally speaking, a misrepresentation is a statement. And ideally, you might consider that statement as being either written or spoken. But there are instances in which silence also can amount to a misrepresentation. One very seminal example is in the case of Spice Girls and Aprilla. This too is available in your case summary, so have a look at it. It related to a circumstance where conduct was considered by court as enough of a representation in relation to misrepresentation by silence. There are other occasions, as in Witt and O'Flanagan, where something which was true has now become false and it has not been divulged to the party who is contracting, in this case the claimant. In Dimmock and Hallett, there were certain related information which was not mentioned. Now, if you would recall earlier, we spoke about the Moorcock in relation to formative requirements, where the three cautions, as in an intention to create legal relations, certainty and completeness are required, besides agreement and consideration, for a contract to be upheld. In the same regard, in misrepresentation, there might be instances where Things are not expressly mentioned in the contract, nor in preceding discussions, but are considered valid and absolutely required for a contract to be entered into. Now, this has to be considered in line with reliance, because misrepresentation hangs on a balance in relation to the reliance made by the claimant himself. Because at one point, it's going to be his word against the person who has allegedly misrepresented him. If a certain statement was relied upon, it is up to the claimant to show that it was material enough for him to enter into the contract and without which he wouldn't have done so. The final element in relation to uh, misrepresentation by silence would be uberima fide or utmost faith, as in Lambert and co-op insurance. At the outset of this lesson in relation to the definition of misrepresentation, I mentioned that it can either be done knowingly or unknowingly. So what's the difference and what remedies are available in each case? On the one hand, you have innocent misrepresentations in which both parties have unknowingly, unwittingly entered into an agreement or some form of contract without really ascertaining the surrounding context. In such an instance, it is unfair to burden uh, the person who has allegedly misrepresented more so than a person who has done so willingly, which is in the case of fraud. Now, fraud relates to an intention being there on the part of the defendant or the person who has misrepresented and is quite similar in nature to fraud in criminal law, but in this context is a contractual arrangement. At common law and as well as in statute, negligence is also looked into. A seminal case in this regards in relation to common law negligence, is Hedley, Byrne and Heller. You would recall this from our discussion and from the lesson in relation to agreement or offer an acceptance. 
This case comes up quite a bit, not just in the first year, but also in the second year in relation to the law of thought. Statutorily, it's also looked after by Section 2.1 of the Misrepresentation Act of 1967. We looked at several exclusion clauses and certain regulation of terms that occur in relation to contracts uh, in the earlier lesson. Likewise, in misrepresentation, parties are inclined to provide exclusion clauses within their uh, agreements. More often than not, uh, the exclusion clauses are a mechanism by which parties at a better advantage utilize them as a sword in order to not force, but perhaps induce weaker parties to enter into contracts. Now, this is looked after by Section 3 of the Misrepresentation Act of 1967. And in context, if you consider the common law aspect of it, what was stated by court in Walker and Boyle is that if the exclusion clauses are broad and if it's ambiguous, it is unreasonable. This goes in line with many of the principles in the law of contract where our court has stipulated that the more onerous and ambiguous the clauses are, it will benefit the other party. As in, where it's confusing and where it's ambiguous and too broad, the court will infer that it will be disadvantageous to the person who came up with the clause in the first place. Another occasion in which exclusion clauses are found in relation to contracts is where there is an entire agreement clause mentioned. And what this stipulates is the parties agree that whatever is stated on the legal document or whatever the contract that they have entered into is everything. As in, whatever discussions and whatever has been considered prior to signing of the agreement or entering into the agreement in some form is not considered valid and as part of the contract. There are several remedies that are afforded to an aggrieved party, including recession and damages. Have a look at the cases Long and Lloyd, Leaf and International Galleries, Clark and Dixon, as well as Roy Scott and Rogerson, the latter being in relation to damages. Now, while I'm not going to go into detail on each and every aspect of recession, you must understand that there is an argument in relation to misrepresentation, primarily due to the fact that it considers dealings and discussions which were done before the contract was entered into. For example, a negotiation might not be part of the contract itself, but may have induced to a certain degree into entering into the contract itself. So, in line with that, on the other hand, there is this component of privity, which stipulates that a third party is no party to a contract between two or more persons. But there might be third parties affected by certain contractual arrangements, but he or she might not be able to affect that contract or get a benefit out of it at one point purely due to the fact that they were not a party to the contract itself, ab initio. So you must always consider these subordinate aspects and most of the time all of these lessons, all of these topics in the law of contract are interrelated. They are part of one another. So never consider that each individual topic has to be considered in isolation. <laughs>